Hello and welcome to Employment Law Matters. This is Season 6, Episode 5, and it's dropping on the 25th of April 2023. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett. I'm a member of Outer Temple Chambers in London, presenter of The Legal Hour on LBC Radio, and founder of the HR Inner Circle, the UK's leading membership organisation for smart ambitious HR professionals. In this season, I'm picking my best 12 episodes from the series of 30 employment law webinars that I ran in 2021. In those webinars, you, hundreds of solicitors and HR professionals, asked questions over Zoom to leading employment law practitioners about different topics. And I've not only picked my favourite episodes, but I've selected the best half dozen questions and answers from those episodes for you. This week, we're looking at union recognition and collective bargaining. I'm playing extracts from a webinar I did on that subject with Sarah Fraser Butlin from Cloisters. And the things you'll hear include her top tips on dealing with a difficult union representative, who can be a companion to help represent employees in workplace formal processes, and how to run collective bargaining negotiations. Before we start, last week I launched my new set of HR policies, 26 policies, two contracts, and a cornucopia of fantastic bonuses, www.policies2023.com. But there is one bonus which disappears this coming Friday, Friday the 28th of April 2023. It's the fast action bonus to reward those, specifically to reward those who can make a decision and purchase the policies in their first two weeks. Runs out this Friday. The fast action bonus is three months free membership to my template of the month club. Every month you get two new professionally written documents from my database of time-saving HR templates. They include the most popular and frequently used forms, assessments, agreements, checklists, letter templates, questionnaires and reports to help the busiest HR professionals and lawyers save time and get things done quicker and easier. But this bonus disappears this coming Friday. You can still get everything else. You can still get the policies. You can still get all the other bonuses. But the three months free membership to the template of the month club is a fast action bonus which disappears this Friday. So have a look now. There's a ton of information about the policies at www.policies2023.com and make sure you buy them before this coming Friday, 28th of April, 2023. And now for Sarah Fraser Butlin. Find out more about Daniel Barnett's HR policies at policies2023.com. Sarah is a barrister at Cloisters, specialising in all areas of labour law as well as clinical negligence. She's an affiliated lecturer in labour law at the University of Cambridge, and she's a fellow of Selwyn College, Cambridge. Sarah is chair of the Industrial Law Society. She joined me in 2021 to speak on trade union recognition and collective bargaining, 
And these are my favorite extracts from that Zoom webinar. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. One issue that I often am not sure about is whether an employer is allowed to allow trade union representatives onto their premises to hand out recruitment leaflets to try to recruit staff into the union. This is something that can be very contentious and it really raises the temperatures in the workplace. Generally, there's no obligation to allow union reps onto a premises to recruit staff. But where a request for recognition has been made and it's got to the formal stage at the Central Arbitration Committee, the CAC, then there are specific provisions that allow the trade union to provide leaflets to those in the bargaining unit, usually via someone appointed as the qualified independent person. That's someone appointed by the CAC. And then once there is to be a recognition ballot, then a union must be given reasonable access to the workforce. But on a day-to-day basis, there's no right to attend. The contentious part is that trade union reps will often stand outside the gates of a factory or outside an office block on public land and seek to recruit staff on their way in and out of work. My advice to employers is always not to overreact. If the reps are on public land and there aren't so many of them that they're causing a public nuisance, then the employer has no right to stop them and you have to let it go. Of course, in most circumstances as well, an employer can't stop a staff member from recruiting other staff to join the union. Now, when when union um, officials are standing outside the office uh, trying to recruit people, are they picketing? Because there are very strict laws on picketing as a code of practice. There are a maximum number of people that can stand outside the building. Does that maximum apply when a union is trying to recruit members? My reading is that it's not picketing because it's not about a trade dispute, but you would be still looking to see whether there's a tort of something like public nuisance or trespass. But if not, uh, then cool cool the temperatures in the workplace. Don't cause a problem by having a heavy handed approach to union reps standing outside the factory. In fact, that's that's the most common advice that I give employers when I'm dealing with this sort of thing. It's like calm the temperature down, don't escalate. A lot of employers think, I, I find, I don't know about you, Sarah, that they immediately go to, to chest thumping and trying to shout out, we're the employer, don't get in our way, we're the big beast here. And all that does is agitate and make things worse. It really does because it makes um, staff members feel insecure and it makes it feel like they need the support of the union because the employer is becoming a bully. And actually, if the employer is reasonable and rational, very often things calm down quite quickly. At the moment, we're seeing a lot of redundancy situations and a lot of um, collective redundancy consultation that goes along with that. Is there a risk that allowing an unrecognised trade union into collective redundancy consultation could be seen as some form of implied recognition of that union? So let's first of all think about what recognition is. Recognition is where there's a collective agreement that unions are entitled to conduct collective bargaining. Collective bargaining, as the name suggests, uh, is about unions being entitled to negotiate. Now, although a collective agreement will usually be in writing and will usually arise from specific discussions and negotiations with the employer, you can have, as you say, an unwritten implied collective agreement. But there needs to be clear and unequivocal evidence that the employer has habitually treated the union as entitled to negotiate. So the law's clear that information and consultation is different to recognition. 
they have different functions, different purposes, and obviously arise from different statutory provisions. So thinking about something like Section 188 on collective redundancies, you have to consult about ways of avoiding the dismissals, reducing the numbers of employees dismissed, and mitigating the consequences of the dismissals. You have to do that with a view to reaching agreement. Now, if the information and consultation stays within those parameters, it's incredibly unlikely that it would amount to recognition. But if the consultation moves to bargaining about the terms and conditions, then it starts heading towards more dangerous territory. It's not an altogether clean line, so care certainly required, and you'd need to really look at the historic position of the union. Uh, Chris Tenney, good morning, Chris, has just uh, commented that we've had this before, the problem of, of aggressive unions, and he comments, my HR team invited them in for tea and biscuits and everything became rather nice. It started in a very fractious way and was a great relationship three years later. I think tea and biscuits is the middle class equivalent of, of, of beer and sandwiches, Sarah Fraser Butlin. Absolutely. Um, I think I think you can win a lot, make a lot of ground, especially uh, with uh, trade unions by being friendly and positive towards them. And actually a good trade union relationship can make all the difference. I totally acknowledge that there can be real difficulties and some union representatives can be very difficult. But as Chris Defatemic says, tea and biscuits is probably a good way to start or beer and crisps. Now, there's a uh, question from an anonymous attendee, which has 21 thumbs up. Uh, I knew this question was coming, and I'm not surprised it's the first one. Do you have any tips, Sarah Fraser-Butlin, on dealing with difficult union members, especially when dealing with redundancy consultations? Absolutely. I think, um, as we've just said, the starting point is always being polite and pleasant and supportive. And that comes as a real counterintuitive position to take when you are dealing with difficult union members. Firstly, just remember that they think they're doing their best for their members and they are trying uh, to defend, as they see it, the position. But being polite and pleasant and nice does go a hugely long way. I also advise that when things get really messy and the union rep is being incredibly difficult, to seriously consider escalating it through the union structures. So if you're dealing with local representatives, it's okay after you've tried to go up to the regional officer and say, look, this isn't working. Uh, We don't quite know why it's not working, but it's not working. Can we have a conversation about this to try and break the deadlock or break the, the relational difficulties? A lot of the difficulties arise when you've had a bad relationship beforehand. So it goes back to if the union has battled for recognition, then you're probably going to have a more fractious relationship and you're going to have to build more bridges. Peter asks, who can be a companion to help represent employees in workplace formal processes? And can an employer legally reject a chosen companion? So the rights of accompaniment are found in Section 10 of the Employment Relations Act. Um, The person to accompany could be a fellow worker. They could be a trade union official or they could be a trade union officer. Remember, of course, that the worker doesn't have to be a trade union member and the trade union doesn't have to be um, recognised. Can they reject it? Can the uh, employer reject it? No, generally not. Um, Obviously, if there is a specific problem during the accompaniment, like the person becomes violent or uh, is incredibly 
difficult in some way, inappropriately so, aggressive, then of course you can uh, deal with that. But broadly, you, the, the worker gets the choice of their accompaniment, uh, companion, that's the word, companion, rather companion. than accompaniment. There is some case law, isn't there, that says that as long as a a company, a companion, companion. Is, um, <laughs> a companion, thank you, is is within regulation 10, section 10, um, no matter how uh, mad or militant or unreasonable they are, they have a statutory right to be there, and the refusal to have them there can result in the two weeks pay, which is the penalty for not letting them have uh, attend. Absolutely. It's a very high bar before you can stop the companion being there. And I'm really saying where they're extraordinarily aggressive or violent or there is some form of um, what we what we would raise the bar to being harassment of the of the distancing officer or the disciplining officer. Absolutely. 26 HR policies by now from policies2023.com. A lot of employers take the view that uh, they will only allow a trade union rep or a workplace colleague into grievance and disciplinary proceedings and they'll, they'll come out with statements in tribunal hearings uh, it's not our policy to let anybody else in when of course there's no written policy saying that at all they've made it up on the spot what's your view on allowing um mum dad or auntie flo in as the companion i think it really depends on the case and i think it depends on what's being discussed it can be very helpful to keep the temp again, keep the temperatures down, having someone accompany who is maybe a little bit more objective, then okay. But it's not a legal right. You you can't say you're entitled to them. It becomes a very fact specific decision dealing with what is the grievance, what is the disciplinary, and you've got to be aware that you have no idea who Auntie Flo is. So you don't really know what they might be like. So it's it's um it's a real uh, one to be very careful of. Liz from Burley Law, morning Liz, asks, when you're looking to change terms and conditions for over 20 employees, at what point are the collective consultation obligations triggered? I'm just bringing up section 188, Sarah, so everyone can look at it as you doubtless refer to it. Thank you. So the issue here is what we mean by proposing to dismiss as redundant. And remember that redundancy in section 188 doesn't just mean dismissals and sackings. It also means where you're making a fundamental change to the terms and conditions. So what do we mean by proposing to dismiss? This is a really difficult and technical area where the law is not entirely clear. We've got the case of, sorry, and you should, we also have to remember that the uh, Collective Redundancies Directive talks about when they collective uh, redundancies are contemplated. So we've got UK law as proposed, directive provides contemplated. So we end up looking at something, uh, the case of Akavan, and the court in Akavan held that the obligation to consult arose prior to the employer's decision to terminate employment contracts. Well, when is that? They held that the consultation procedure must be started once a strategic or commercial decision compelling him to contemplate or to plan for collective redundancies has been taken. Well, it's tricky, isn't it, to think through what the court actually meant in Akavan. The Court of Appeal in USA and Nolan were certainly not very sure. 
they referred uh, the question back to the European Court and they asked, was consultation required when the employer is proposing but hasn't yet made a strategic business or operational decision that will foreseeably or inevitably lead to collective redundancies? Or was it only when that decision has been made and the employer is then proposing consequential redundancies? Unfortunately, the European Court declined to determine the issue because in USA and Nolan, it was actually dealing with staff on a military base. And the directive, Article 1.2b of the directive, expressly excluded the dismissal of staff on a military base. So we're left with this phrase from the European Court of it being once a strategic or commercial decision compelling him to contemplate or to plan for collective redundancies being taken. And you'd need full facts, full understanding of what was going on uh, to be able to advise properly on exactly when that is met. But there is certainly still uncertainty on that point www.policies2023.com 26 HR policies just for you. Um, A question from an anonymous attendee. Do we need to continue to recognise a union if employees tupi across from a company where recognition is in place? Oh, tupi and uh, recognition. It is really messy. So, What we have to be really careful of is exactly what has happened. If the bargaining, so recognition applies to a bargaining unit. And so if your bargaining unit retains a distinct identity after the TUPI transfer and the union is an independent union and that category of employees who um, also uh, goes across the TUPI transfer, then in those circumstances, the recognition also transfers. Now, so the simple answer is, yes, you do, if the distinct identity of that bargaining unit remains. The complicated bit is if the identity is lost, because at that point, the directive, the acquired rights directive, says that the recognition should be maintained for a period to ensure that representation can continue for a period. But TUPI doesn't have equivalent provisions. So under TUPI, if the distinct identity is lost, then the recognition under Reg uh, Reg 6 doesn't transfer. But if under the directive, you at least need to keep it for a short period. Breeden Consulting provides small and medium businesses with the breadth of HR support usually enjoyed by large corporates. So if you want practical and commercially focused HR support, or if you're an HR professional looking for an opportunity to capitalise on your experience by joining a great team, visit www.breedenconsulting, that's B-R-E-E-D-O-N, BreedenConsulting.co.uk. Interesting question from Sue Apps, and I think this is a very common concern. How can you make sure that a collectively agreed policy doesn't become a contractual term of an individual's employment contract? So, um, a collective agreement only becomes a term in an individual's contract if there's a bridging term. 
And the bridging term is either expressed or implied. And so if your individual employment contract refers to the collective agreement, then obviously it's in the individual contract. The challenge is more often than not about whether there's an implied term that bridges the collective agreement into the uh, individual contract. And my advice would usually be to actually make it abundantly clear and explicit that the collectively agreed policy is not part of the contract of employment. Expressly say there is no bridging term. And that should, depending on exactly what the factual matrix is, that should avoid it. Fran asks, is there a normal process for collective bargaining around pay and what happens if you can't reach an agreement? Sarah Fraser Butler in 45 minutes. Go. (laughs) So um, how do you collectively bargain? Well, the first thing you have to remember is that collective bargaining isn't about achieving um, necessarily achieving what an agreement and achieving a negotiation. Collective agreement is sitting down and talking. So you've got two options. You can in your when you recognise a union, you'll have a collective agreement and that will almost certainly set up a method for collective bargaining. That method will set out the information that has to be provided, the meetings that have to be held and who attends the meetings and how things are dealt with. And that there's an usually an escalation process, a dispute process that if things aren't being resolved, then what, what happens next? If you can't agree on the method, uh, then and the and the union has been recognised, then there is a uh, statutory method for collective bargaining. It is set out in Schedule A1 of Tolrica, and it sets out the six steps of uh, collective bargaining of how it's to be done. And you can actually that can be imposed on an organisation by the CAC if, if necessary. And um, what do you do if you can't reach an agreement on pay? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Because they, we've then come to all the inducement cases where employers have thought, oh, we can't agree. We'll offer a we'll offer a sweetener and try and persuade the individual employees. Cost Alan Dunkley, really interesting quick case. What happens then? Or ultimately, does the uh, employer have to dismiss and re-employ? And then you're into Section 188 Collective Redundancy Consultations. So it's a, a really difficult factual scenario. Firstly, look at the method of collecting bargaining. Make sure you followed that. And secondly, if you can't get to an agreement, then you've got to start thinking about what your options are going forward to, to resolve the problem. Radar is a specialist commercial and litigation law firm dedicated to helping businesses navigate their risk, including employment issues. Radar's legal expertise and innovative digital tools focus on educating businesses before problems happen. Book your free 30-minute employment and HR consultation today or subscribe to their monthly newsletter at Radar, that's R-R-A-D-A-R, radar.com slash employment. An anonymous attendee asks, our trade union has dwindling membership and invisible representatives. How easy is it to de-recognise the union? Well, you've first of all got to decide what kind of recognition you've got. If you've got voluntary recognition, then you can de-recognise entirely straightforwardly. Just look at the collective agreement and it'll tell you how to de-recognise. If you've got semi-voluntary or involuntary recognition, then the process is slightly different. 
Now, just to explain for those who aren't so familiar with recognition, uh, semi-voluntary recognition is where the union made an application to the CAC. It was accepted. But before the CAC adjudicated, there was an agreement to recognise the union. In semi-voluntary recognition, you can obtain de-recognition three years after the date of recognition, and it's fairly straightforward to do it. If, however, you end up in involuntary recognition, which is where the CAC has formally um, formally uh, done the recognition, then you have a three-year limit and you have to go backwards through the recognition process to get the de-recognition. There's a formal provisions in Schedule A1 of how you de-recognise a union. And basically, if you know the flowchart, there's some brilliant flowcharts from actually, can you believe it, from the DTI. Who remembers the DTI? But there's some brilliant flowcharts from the DTI of how the recognition processes work. And you basically go through the same process, but in relation to de-recognition. So first of all, identify what kind of recognition you've got, and then you'll be able to work out what you can do about de-recognition. Of course, remember that once you've got them de-recognised, the union could always get get active again and decide to seek recognition. So be a bit cautious. That was Sarah Fraser-Buckland from Cloisters. Sarah, thank you so much. Join me next Tuesday, the 2nd of May 2023, when I'll be bringing you highlights from my webinar with Jeremy Scott Joint of Outer Temple Chambers, in which he answers questions on employee privacy and data monitoring. Don't forget, you just have until this coming Friday the 28th of April 2023 to buy my HR policies at policies2023.com and get as a fast action bonus three months free membership of my template of the month club. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Daniel Barnett. Stay safe. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.